Let's pick up where we left off this morning. Matthew chapter 4. Got a few few points on the end of Matthew chapter 4. And then before we leave, a quick overview of the Sermon on the Mount. Which we will begin, Lord willing, next week. You know, James tells us not to be planning ahead. And, you know, you always hear people say, oh, Lord willing. Well, it is if the Lord is willing. We will go to Matthew chapter 5 next week. I expected to do all of this last week, but the Lord had not willed it. Matthew chapter 4. And I'm going to read what I read this morning. Starting in verse 23. And into the Beatitudes, we'll go through verse 12 in chapter 5. And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. A quick prayer. Our Lord God, God, guide us this evening through your word. Open our eyes to see what we have not seen. Help us to love deeper than we have loved before. And help us to know Jesus greater than when we came in these doors tonight. We ask this for his sake. Amen. All right, so this morning... We really just looked at verse 23 and talked about it for a while. As Jesus goes, begins his, he's begun his ministry, and he's going from town to town in Galilee. Remember, this is in the north of Israel, uh, as we would think as Israel as a whole nation. This is in the north uh, area around the Sea of Galilee. And he's going from town to town, preaching, teaching, and then what we didn't get to this morning, healing. It says he was he, he was uh, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. 
So, and we talked about this morning that preaching and teaching for the kingdom of God was work. Uh, Jesus was for sure working um, with all of his power and healing every disease and affliction. A couple of things as we think about Jesus healing people especially in this context as we see it. And the two things that popped up to me as I was thinking about it, and one, we've heard this word a lot already this evening, one, power, and two, compassion. So he's going about teaching of the kingdom of heaven, proclaiming the gospel, but also he is showing his power and displaying his compassion to all of these people as he's doing this. Uh, and this morning, I kind of hinted a little bit on the humanity of Jesus. As he is working, as he is doing this, and he's, you know, he's getting tired, he needs to eat, he's going to have to rest, he's working, he's struggling, he's got his bootstraps on. I mean, he's going. Well, in this, we see the other side. So this morning, it was kind of like we were talking about his humanity. Now we're seeing his divinity. We're seeing who he is, not just a man. And here's the thing. Jesus Christ is truly man, as much as all of us. No different. Just as much as you're a person, he was a person. At the same time, he was and is truly God. I want you to think about that this week. He is the same as you and me, but yet still truly God. Now I've heard I've heard um, R.C. Sproul say a lot. I stay away from saying that he is fully God and fully man. Because when you say the words fully, and this is kind of a, a just kind of nitpicking, you think of quantity. So if you have a cup, you want to fill it full. Well, if you've got two things to fill into a cup and you say it's full, well, it's not fully of one and fully of the other. It's mixed. What we have to understand with Jesus as being fully or truly God and truly man is there was no like, oh, it's this much percentage of God and this much percentage of man. He was all man and all God. And so it's really hard to think about quantity or was he this part then or this part that, you know. And we can kind of see, we see in certain aspects of the Gospels of Jesus' life where we might attribute that statement to that, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, that attribute of him. So when he says, I'm thirsty, that's not God. That's not him as God. God, you know, that's him as man. When he heals the sick, that's the power of God. And so we can see these two, there's a word I'm thinking of, and I can't think of it. Humanity, deity, 
Uh, it'll come to me. Um, so what we're seeing here is literally the power of God coming through Jesus of Nazareth. Truly God and truly man. No one like him. He is the I am Yahweh. And as we see the power of God through Jesus as he heals, what does he heal? Every disease, every affliction that they brought to him. It wasn't like some of them came up, and, mm, no, I don't, I can't, I cannot deal with a hip. Or, you know, uh, you know, go check someone else for your arm. You might need to see a, special, a specialist. No, no, no. And look, look at the disease. It gives us a list later in uh, 24, the end of 24. Various diseases, pains, oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics. He healed them all. He healed them all. Now, it's really easy to understand. It's because he created them all. The, <laughs> you have a problem with your body. If you have a problem with your car, you take it to someone who knows about cars, a mechanic. Well, they took their bodies to their creator. Did they all know it at the time? Probably not. Point being, as Hebrews says, uh, Hebrews says that Jesus, the Son of God, through whom all who also, or I'm sorry, through whom also created the world. Jesus can heal. He can do all of these things, remove these pains, these diseases, these um, these demons. He can cause the 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 paralytics to walk because. He has created them. He is their creator. Now, let's look at Colossians 1, and let's see exactly who Jesus is and his role in creation. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 15. Colossians 1 verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Not that he was born. It's not what that's saying. He always has been. In the beginning was the word. Uh, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and and invisible. What was created by Jesus? Everybody. All things. All things. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Alright, so I think I've made the point. This man who's walking around Galilee, who's proclaiming this message, who's teaching these people, is God. And he is showing the power of God in what he is doing. 
Now, I want to come back to this idea of God sh- or Jesus showing his power for another reason in just a minute. But let's consider before that compassion. The compassion that Jesus was showing. I can't imagine how many people came. Because it says his fame spread throughout all Syria. And it says in the last verse, 25, they came from Galilee, the Decapolis. They came from Jerusalem, Judea, beyond the Jordan. So basically, they came from everywhere. They were coming out from all places. And he did not, it does not say he turned one away. He healed every disease and affliction. He did not owe that to anyone. Miss Faye, all this, all the thankfulness that we have towards God, of all the things that we've mentioned today, He did not owe us any of that. Not one bit of it. But haven't we not deserved worse? But yet he has shown his power here in Matthew 4 and even in our midst. And that's, that's the compassion of Jesus. That is who he is. Uh, he didn't owe them anything. He didn't expect anything in return. He probably didn't get anything in return. You know, you remember the, the uh, what was it, the, was there 10 lepers? And he healed all 10? Nine of them. Whoop. Didn't even say thank you. So, he didn't do all of this to gain something, to earn something. He wasn't charging admission or a fee. He was being compassionate upon the people. The word spread and more and more came and he kept healing. He was hoping for something. They would respond to his teaching and preaching. He was hoping for that. A couple couple things before we move on. Uh, And this, this gets a little tricky. What we have to think about here, and we'll see this, it will, you see it all throughout the Gospels. Um, so if you look back at 23, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease. What we have to make sure we don't get wrong is that physical healing does not equal the gospel. Okay? Physical healing does not equal the gospel. Um, nowhere in Scripture are we promised that we'll always be healthy. You follow me, and we're going to get all those kinks out. You're not going to get any of them awful diseases. Nowhere in Scripture are we promised in this life no physical pain. We are waiting the day of the resurrection 
when all in Christ raised from the dead. And we are given a glorified body like Jesus has at this very moment. But no promise of physical healing or physical protection or life in general. We are not promised tomorrow. Uh, makes me think of Paul's, um, Paul's words to the Philippians, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Uh, we might hurt, we might endure pain, but for us, death is a friend. Death is a friend because it opens the door to our Lord. Um, just because Jesus is doing both doesn't mean they're equal. And I'm not saying that Jesus healing people isn't powerful, isn't important. But that's not why Jesus came. You have to understand. Jesus didn't go to Galilee to heal people. Uh, he didn't come for the body. He came for the soul. Right? Jesus' main concern is the inner man, not the, out, not the outer man. Um, let, me, let me read this real quick. Probably could have quoted it, but I messed it up. Uh, Paul says to the Corinthians, one more, we do not lose heart. Why? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. We are wasting away. As I mentioned this morning, as the grass and the flower fade, so does the flesh. So does man. But the word of God does not fail. Thanks be to God. We are united to Christ, the word, the incarnate word. And therefore, as being united with Christ, though our flesh will fade and fail, our souls live forever with him. Um, you know, the, the writer of Hebrews, he tells us, that is appointed that all men what die and appointed judgment so that gives you that shows you two things that there is there's two things we're dealing with here you die but then you live and all men are going to be judged right so are we going to be focused on that which will die or that which will live so Jesus comes for that which will continue to live, not that which will die. And, you know, eternal life as we know it means, you think about it, it means to live forever. Well, all people will, will be forever, but eternal life in Christ is to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent and to know him forever. But those outside of Christ will know forever that they are outside of Christ. Forever. Forever. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus' emphasis on the inner, not the external. 
He tells, okay, warning, don't do this. But he says, so that you don't be thrown into hell, what should you do? Cut your arm off. Pluck out your eye. He doesn't want you to do those things, but the point being is, it's better to not have an arm, to not have an eye, than to go be thrown into hell. Do you see? Physical versus, not, not, now we're talking not just internal and external, but temporary and eternal, which are two concepts we want to continue to think about as we go into the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus say? Don't fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill the soul. And we mentioned it multiple times today. What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? So we've got to understand as we see healing throughout Scripture, it is, it is the compassion and power of God, but it is not God's end goal in mind. Because guess what? He's going to raise all of his people from the dead anyway. Right? Um, I think I turned my page too quick here. So a couple things just to keep in mind. Uh, consider Christ as our example. When we think about... We... Well, I won't... We turn to God. Number one, we turn to God and only God for healing. For relief. There's nowhere else to go. He's the only one with power. That's why we cried out this week multiple times to God for his hand, his power to heal, to save, because there's nowhere else to go. Okay? We don't negate that. We don't lower that aspect, but we don't hold that higher than eternal life than the soul. Because when we do that, we idolize that which will fade and fail and die. And we lose focus of that which will live the souls. So consider Christ as our example. Consider Christ as our example when we have to balance, you know, crying out to God for uh, physical things. It's not wrong in itself. But we have to balance that with knowing that all of that stuff will be gone. Even if it's our own lives. So we look at Christ as the example. And what does he do? He dies for the sake of souls. He's willing to give his life as a ransom for many. So we look to Christ as an example when we're balancing this understanding. You think about the Christian martyrs in the last 2,000 years. Even the prophets in the Old Testament, those guys were killed for the sake of Christ. They didn't know it was Jesus, but they were killed for the sake of Christ. And we think about Christian martyrs and how they are willing to give up their lives for the sake of something that is eternal. Uh, Sylvia, and I think my mom as well, have been listening to Elizabeth Elliot a lot. Uh, her husband is well known uh, with another group, another few group of men of taking 
of, of attempting to take the gospel to this one unreached people group who were known to be super dangerous. Anybody heard of Jim Elliott? Anybody? Go Google him tonight. It, you shared, the, go watch The End of the Spear. Isn't that what it's called? The End of the Spear. Uh, it, you shared a link on Facebook where you could go watch it for free. They take, they, they want to take the gospel to this tribe. This was in the 60s, 50s or 60s. They, they, yeah, they wanted to take the gospel to this unreached people. They planned months and months. They, made, they had an airplane. They were doing all these things to do the right thing. And they were making contact. And they were talking to them. And they were exchanging gifts. Long story short, they were speared one day by these people. And they did it for the sake of the gospel. They did it for the sake of the gospel, knowing also that this people group, even if they died, no, that when they died, that their souls would live forever. We move, we proclaim, we tell, we live for the sake of Christ, but also for the sake of the souls of our grandkids and our kids. His wife. Yeah, his wife, the wives of these men follow up and end up uh, this people group comes to Christ. And Elizabeth Elliot and her kids, she raises her kids among these once savages in the jungle. Yeah. So go look that up. Uh, but Jim Elliot said this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. You're not going to keep what you're wearing. You're not going to keep your life. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So go look that up. Jim Elliott, The End of the Spear. There's a, they made a movie about it. Okay. Uh, let's move on. Oh, quickly. Going back to the power of, of God being revealed through Jesus in this time. Uh, there was a point to it as well. There was a point of God, of Jesus showing his power through healing. Um, and it was to affirm who he was. And it was to affirm his words that he was going about speaking and proclaiming. Look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. It's, I really love how Matthew ends this. Matthew 7 chapter or Matthew chapter 7 verse 28 and 29 Now keep in mind what I said Jesus the power of Jesus being revealed is affirming who he is and what he's saying And when Jesus finished these sayings he ends the sermon on the mount the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The scribes, they take what is written and they write it down. Or they take what is written and they tell. Jesus is talking with man. He is talking as a man who has authority, not just to rewrite or to tell, but he is telling his story. He is giving them his word. He is the author of what is being spoken. And you know what he does right after this? Look at chapter 8. 
Just look at your headings in chapter 8. Jesus cleanses a leper. Uh, He then heals um, a servant of the centurion. Jesus heals many. Jesus calms a storm. Jesus heals two men with demons. So he speaks with authority in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and then in chapter 8, and then chapter 9, and I think even to chapter 10, he shows his authority with his works, with his signs and his wonders. So this man's going to come on the scene and say all this stuff. Who does he think he is? Well, he walked on water yesterday. You see, the power of God revealed through Jesus upholds the words that he brings and the words that he says and confirms his identity as the Son of God. Uh, Nicodemus started to put this together when Nicodemus went to Jesus at night in John 3. He said something to the effect of, I know you're, I know you're a prophet from God, because of what you do of the signs and miracles. See, he was starting to put it together. Okay, this guy's saying some crazy things and my buddies aren't liking it, but hey, look what he's doing. So, we, while Jesus comes to the people in compassion and he heals and he is gracious, he is also showing who he is and his power. All right, quickly, and we'll finish this chapter. Look what happens with all of this, with the teaching, the preaching, the healing. It says in verse 24, So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And look at verse 25. And great crowds around, or great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Great Crowds follow. Fame. His fame went up. Now, it doesn't directly tell us if this was because of his teaching or his preaching or his healing or combination, but I think it would be safe to assume that the crowds came because of what they were seeing. Because it says, and he healed them and his fame spread. And they kept coming and they kept bringing more people to heal. So I think it's safe to say they came because of what was being done. Probably not what was being said. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus probably drew a crowd off of what he said every now and then too. And off of what he did. But you also must understand, as much as he could draw a crowd with his words, he could repel a crowd with his words just as fast. Multiple times in the Gospels, you see people leave his sight because of what he says. What, what would be better? Hey, this guy's healing everybody. Let's go see. Or, hey, this guy's telling everybody to repent of their sins. Let's go see. So, you see, it, he's got this thing going on where he can draw a crowd either way. But what you must understand, what we must be careful as a church, is not to get tricked and deceived by crowds can't get tricked and deceived by crowds. Uh, think about, um, well, I, won't, I won't go there. Uh, one, number one thing, we can't follow the crowd. Can't do it. You cannot follow the crowd. We read the passage this morning. Um, how many go through the narrow gate? Not the crowd. 
few. If you see a crowd in Christian circles, run. Promise. Uh, there has been two, maybe three, great revivals in America where the crowd was, might have been a safe place to go. That's not very many times in a long past. If you see a crowd in Christian circles, it's probably because you need to run. There's probably nothing biblical going on in that. And we have to consider that as a church. Do we do things to draw a crowd? Do we do things so that people will come? No. I, right. And so here, here's the thing. Here's an old saying. What you win them with is what you'll win them to. Right, so if, if we are telling everyone, oh, we've got the best, or we do so good at, they'll come, but what do they want the next week? Whatever you got them to come for. So, <laughs> right, so we consider as a church, we want, we want these seats to be full, but we want them to be full of believers and and not that not that we don't welcome unbelievers because we want them to sit down too because the only hope that they have is what they hear but what we don't want is to draw people to draw all unbelievers in because of what we've won them with we want to win them by the gospel not just here but at home at the grocery store all throughout our lives, right? And so we want to be weary of either the crowd out there or us trying to draw a crowd here. And there, there, there's the, 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 the age-old thing, well, if we'll just get them in and then they'll hear. We can't do that. We can't just say if we just get them in, then because if we just get them in, if you just get unbelievers to come in, you're just a building full of unbelievers, but you and I, you and I, we live the life of Christ followers. We proclaim the gospel to those who are out. We invite people to church. And the Lord, he'll do his work. He'll do his work. All right. Um, okay. Sermon on the Mount, really quickly. Just a few, a few things to keep in mind as you read through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, this is Jesus' first recorded teaching in Matthew. He's not really, other than to John the Baptist and to Satan, he's not spoke a word of teaching in Matthew, right? Uh, the next three chapters, I want you to understand, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, are so well known, but they are so misabused and misused. The Sermon on the Mount Anytime I hear someone's going to be teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, I get nervous because it's just, it's, it's so, it, there are so much wisdom and knowledge in the Sermon on the Mount, even unbelievers are attracted to it. Like the golden rule, it's in there, right? Uh, how, uh, there's financial advice in the Sermon on the Mount. But you can't, you can't just, I like that, you know. I think I'm going to apply that to my life here. Hopefully my finances will get better. 
or you know my you know, my marriage has been kind of rough so i'm gonna you have to understand you when you're reading when we're going through the sermon on the mount we have to remember the context and the context is the kingdom of heaven okay not this world the kingdom of heaven and what did jesus tell uh pilate my kingdom is not of this world okay so we have to understand that this isn't surface how the best way to live your life. If you take the Sermon on the Mount, because if you read through it, there's a lot of do this, do this, act like this, behave like this. It's there. But I'm going to tell you, if you try to take the Sermon on the Mount and say, this is how I'm going to live, you'll fail. All day, every day. Okay? You cannot use this as a checklist for life, for the sake of pleasing God, over the sake of gaining eternal life. So if the context of the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of heaven, and how do I know it is the kingdom of heaven? Look at verses 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. What are all these things that these who are blessed, receiving, having, inheritance, the kingdom of heaven? So keep that in mind. The context of this, these next three chapters is the kingdom of heaven. Now also remember, what is the entrance to the kingdom of heaven? Not this list, not these, how, how you should live. Well, let's, unless one be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. It will be very tempting, very tempting to apply this to your life in a way that takes out the supernatural, takes out your dependency on the Holy Spirit. That's what this 5, 6, and 7 ought to do for you. As you read 5, 6, and 7, you should be quivering in your shoes. You don't want me to be angry, God? That's like murder? You, you tell me if I look at a woman and lust, I've committed adultery already? Good luck with that. Oh, you want me to love my enemies? We can't do this, folks. We read this and we see our need of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. That's why... That's why... God promised it in prophecy after prophecy to through the prophets. You cannot bear down the Sermon on the Mount and say, if I live this way, I got it figured out. Let me tell you what God said through Ezekiel in prophecy in the Old Testament. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Here it is. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You want to understand the Sermon on the Mount as a Christian. You have to understand that you cannot live out the Sermon on the Mount except by faith in Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have a lot of people in the world, we have a lot of sadly Christians 
who take this passage and say, do this and you've arrived. Do this and you have a good life. Does not work that way. It should bring us to our knees and say, God, forgive me. I am a wretched person with a wicked heart. That's what this next five, six, seven, or next three chapters should do. Now, don't get me wrong. For those who believe in Christ, have been united in Him, and have the Holy Spirit, you better believe you better be looking at this and saying, and evaluating. If the Spirit of God is in me, and saying, make me more like Christ. Use chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, to make me more like Christ by the power of the Spirit. Not that I'm going to be more like Christ when I start nailing these things down. But I need you, Father, to make me more like my Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit through the understanding of your Word. So that's what we're going to be looking at in 5, 6, 7, and 8. Keep these two different thoughts in mind. Right. Not external, but internal. Not temporary, but eternal. We're looking for the internal and the eternal. Jesus is going directly at the heart for the sake of the kingdom of God. We're not talking about our physical, temporary lives. The good news is, is when we get the eternal and the internal right, we actually have an effect on the physical and the temporary and the people around us. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you today that you have given us your word, but Lord, that you have given us your spirit, that we may actually know, follow, and obey. And we give thanks that there is no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. It's in his name we pray, amen. Y'all have